I'm Christian Weishart, and this is Examining Ethics, brought to you by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics and DePaul University. Nature has always fascinated the philosopher Martin Bunzel. So when he retired to California, he was excited to live near the Pacific Crest Trail. The close proximity of the famous trail inspired him to embark on a new project of thinking while walking. For him, this spectacular setting proved to be fertile ground for reflecting on philosophical puzzles and questions about nature and ethics. When I'm walking there, I'm thinking about restoration, trying to correct what we've done. And the question is, what happens if in the course of correcting what you've done, the only way to correct it is, is to do harm? Stay tuned for my interview with Martin Bunzel on today's episode of Examining Ethics. The simplest pleasures and healthful exercise of walking in a natural setting have been almost impossible for the millions of Americans who live in the cities. And where natural areas exist within the cities, they are usually not connected by walkways. And in many cities, there's simply just no footpaths that lead out of the city into the countryside. Our history of wise management of America's national forests has assisted us in designating the initial elements of the national trail system. Two national scenic trails, one in the east and one in the west, are being set aside as the first components of the trail system, the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail. The legislation also calls for... President Johnson designated the PCT a national trail in 1968. Each year, thousands of visitors hike all or parts of the 2,650 miles between the Canadian and Mexican borders. Every person visiting the trail has their own reasons for doing so, whether it's to explore personal problems or just take in the scenery. Martin Bunzel had a unique aim in mind when he started walking parts of the PCT. He wanted to use various points in the trail to think through some of the most puzzling philosophical questions related to nature. The result was his book, Thinking While Walking. I spoke with him recently about just a few of the many subjects he explores in it. So what gave you the idea for this book? I had been thinking about an interest in nature writ large, which came out of work I'd been doing since 2008 on the intersection of philosophy and climate change. And at the same time, as a newly retired person with time on my hands, I was aware that this magnificent trail, 2,600 plus miles, starts 50 miles from my house in Campo, California on the Mexican border and goes all the way up to Manning in Canada. And I've also had a love affair with strolling and thinking while I stroll. Some of my most creative insights, to the extent I've had any, in philosophy come from that particular state of mind when you're not thinking too hard, you're mildly distracted and your mind wanders. And so I, I, I thought this might be a, a creative exercise. I went to different sections on the Pacific Crest Trail and some I had something specific in mind, but some I just started walking and thinking. And yeah, I wonder is, you know, is there anything about being in nature, walking in nature, hiking in nature, that makes one more inclined to be philosophically inquisitive? Or could you have done this project from the parking lot? 
Well, I, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I, I, I did find when I lived on the East Coast that driving was sometimes a catalyst for philosophical thought. But if you're interested in nature and thinking about nature, it's good to be in nature because you get a greater chance that something around you will trigger a thought that you hadn't had before. And, uh, you know, this, this trail is, is so astonishing. It's not astonishing in the way that people think. I mean, you're walking on this small path for thousands of miles. And in one sense, it's very much the same if you look down at your feet. But the surroundings vary an enormous amount. And so, yeah, I think it's a good catalyst for thinking about nature to be in nature. So I thought maybe we could talk about the interesting questions that you came up with and you could sort of set the scene for us in terms mm -hmm. of the, the space that inspired these questions. So my first question is about comes from the Mojave Desert. So you're talking a lot about the lifeboat scenario and climate change, and you write that considerations of welfare override considerations of justice when it comes to climate change. And I just wondered if you could expand on that. I, I thought that was, that was really challenging for me. Well, the Pacific Crest Trail goes through the western edge of the Mojave Desert. And, you know, I think when people think, well, I'm walking in the desert, you have a picture of walking across the Sahara Desert. So it's this vast expanse of, of sand dunes. But the Mojave Desert is not that way. The chapter starts with me walking down a, a narrow road and coming to an aqueduct, that's a canal that is delivering water to Los Angeles, and then looking up and seeing one of the largest wind farms in the United States on the hill overlooking it. And then looking to my right and seeing one of the, the largest solar farms in the United States. I think this is emblematic of parts of the Pacific Crest Trail. It's not as natural and wild as people like to fantasize. Humans have intruded on it with its technology. And in fact, that arena of the Mojave Desert has been very, affected by human beings over farming it, draining the water table, and pretty much transforming it. The setting is one in which I do start thinking about ethical questions, which I do at different stages. And one of the things I'm interested in is this counterpoint between what philosophers call deontological th thinking versus consequentialist thinking. Thinking in the style that Kant thinks versus thinking in the way that John Stuart Mill thinks. Kant really speaks about never looking to the consequences of an act to decide on its rightness or wrongness while Mill defends the proposition that we should do so. But in introductions to philosophy or basic ethics, we often treat these as two competing theories of right and wrong. And in the course of this book, I've come to think that that's a wrong way to think about it. I think that deontological thinking starts from the bottom up from thinking about right and wrong from an individual point of view. And I think John Stuart Mill's kind of theory, a theory of consequentialism is really a social theory. It's a theory of the general good. And I think that the attempt to try and merge these two into some overriding unified moral theory starts with the misconception that they are both theories about the individual. I think they are theories about different subjects. But we're nonetheless still faced with the choice, when do you allow considerations of the general good, considerations of social welfare, to trump considerations of notions of the individual right? And when I was teaching philosophy at the introductory level, I'd always give my students one of these examples. It's a, 
a classic lifeboat example. You know, there are five people in the lifeboat, there's no food, what should you do? One of the people has to get thrown overboard or if for undergraduates, you normally say one of them has to get eaten. So the question is who gets eaten? How do you make a decision? And most people will start off as I think Kantians, they'll say the fair thing to do is draw straws, give everyone a chance. And then in this, in this class, what you do is you start boosting the contribution that one of these people can make to society. They're going to solve AIDS or, or they're going to save climate change. They're going to save the world. And eventually, so you can get every kid in the class to flip from considerations of justice to considerations of welfare, except maybe one holdout will say, let 7 billion people die. I respect the rights of the one, but nearly everyone has a, has a tipping point, as it were. And so I'm interested in what, to put it provocatively, might be called the limits of justice in the interests of welfare. And I don't think we think enough about that. And how does that play out with regard to climate change? Well, I think with climate change, we focus, and this is very cruel, but I'm willing to defend it. I think we focus too much on the number of people who will suffer because of climate change. And that blinds us to some really complicated issues that affect the vast majority of people in the world. If we look at the world today, there are about 7.8 billion people and 6.5 billion of those people are poor. They live very poor lives. When we think about climate change and their interests, we tend to focus on the small number. It's a few million people who will be really dramatically adversely affected by climate change. And from that, we've embraced the rhetoric that the poor of the world are going to be suffering the most from climate change. But the vast majority of poor people from those 2 million up to the really rich remaining 1.5 billion people have a much more complicated situation than that. And the reason I say that is the following. If we look at the challenge of climate change in realistic terms, it's going to take a half a century to 75 years to fully convert to a renewable portfolio to give up all fossil fuels. If you take the 6.5 poor people in the world, they aspire to a better life. They aspire to refrigerators that we have. They aspire to an electric bike, perhaps. And that energy cannot be satisfied fully by renewable energy now. The renewable portfolio of the world is about 20%, and that includes nuclear fuel. And energy demand is going to grow about by about 40% over the next 30 years. And the vast majority of that demand is from the developing world. There's no way we energy hogs in the developed world can cut back and make a significant difference to those people in the world. So I think from the point of view of welfare of the vast majority of poor people in the world, there is actually a trade-off between how many people will suffer from climate change dramatically, if you live in Bangladesh and you're at sea level, versus what is going to happen and what's in the interests of the majority of those poor people. I think these are very complicated trade-offs. And our discussion about them is colored by the fact that we often come to these debates with unrealistic ideas about what can be done. You can't snap your fingers and have a fully renewable energy portfolio in five or 10 years and satisfy the needs of these billions of people. 
So the next spot on our hike is Castella. I'm going to steal a question from you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it permissible to do harm, even if you have a view to do good? Castella is a, an astonishing place. When you go into the state park in Castella, you see some immensely old rock formations, hundreds of hundreds of millions of years old. But Castella is another sad place. I mean, the sense that you, if you're an ignoramus about nature as I am, you think, oh, I'm in a, in a, in a forest. But it's not a first growth forest. It's a forest that was regrown after the first forests were destroyed by white settlers. White settlers came in there because they were looking for gold initially. The search for the gold led a lot of, to a lot of killing of the native people there. And then the digging for gold gave rise to a lot of pollution, which killed off a lot of the indigenous animals in the area. I think about that area because when I'm working there, I'm thinking about restoration, trying to correct what we've done. And the question is, what happens if in the course of correcting what you've done, the only way to correct it is is to do harm? In a way, this takes us back to the discussion of welfareist considerations, because, you know, if you're a a welfareist, you allow that sometimes you may need to do harm in order to do good. And I think in the present situation, we are in a situation where we face such choices. If we're discussing it as, as you've taken the question, we're assuming that we're doing harm to things that are rights bearers, that have moral standing. What are we to do? Well, we're on, the, we're on, a, we're on a course now to cause the extinction of 80% of species in the world. And if we want to cut that back, we have to intervene in drastic ways. One of the ways we can intervene is to lime the ocean, to decrease the amount of carbon dioxide the ocean gives out to the atmosphere, and to increase the capacity of the ocean to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. One of the ways to do that is in areas what's known as ocean upwelling which runs all the way up and down this west coast of the United States. Because when ocean upwelling takes place, cold air from deep in the ocean rises up. And as it rises up, like a a bottle of soda being the cap taken off it, carbon dioxide is held under pressure in that cold water as it rises up is released into the atmosphere. Now, if you lime that section of the ocean, you can reduce the amount of carbon dioxide being released. And that would have a salutary effect on global warming if it was done on scale. But the areas of ocean upwelling are ocean nurseries where species are spawning and and growing offspring. And by engaging in a a strong amount of liming the ocean, you're going to change the acidity quite quickly in a way that will make it impossible for those species to adjust. You may in fact cause that extinction of those species or damage them greatly. And the question is, is that admissible if in the process you're going to save a lot of other species? I think we face some very, very difficult choices. And this touches on, I think, a a philosophical blind spot that a lot of people have ethically. They think that acting is different from not acting. That if if you don't act, you're on safer ground than if you act. So if by not acting something bad happens, that somehow is is better off than acting and something bad happened. And this touches on an even larger question in ethics, which you may have discussed with your listeners, which is the, the difference between positive and negative duties. Can you expand on positive and negative duties a little bit? I mean, philosophers have been very good in developing a theory of negative duties. 
that is a duty to do no harm. So we have a principle that it's wrong for me to interfere with you and it's wrong for you to interfere with me. I shouldn't interfere with your freedom of movement, your freedom of speech, and so too you with me. And when you try and ground this kind of um, sentiment of negative ethics, you can see how it's in all of our self-interests. When human beings lived on their own isolated, we didn't worry about this. As we came together for mutual benefit and started to live cheek by jowl, we could step on each other's toes as it were. And it became in all of our self-interest to try and minimize the interference with others. But philosophers are very bad in generating a theory of positive duty, that I have a duty to do something. Example you might think of is, I have a duty not to drown a child that I see on the beach. But philosophers usually have been pretty hard-nosed about the fact that I don't have a duty to save a drowning child. It's maybe condemnable to me, but I don't do moral wrong by doing that. I have no duty to do that. Now, the challenge for ethics, I think, is how you generate a theory of positive duties. It's easy for a consequentialist, for a welfareist, but it's very, very hard for someone who believes that moral theory consists of a theory of justice and a theory of justice grounded on a, a Kantian kind of mode of thinking. That is, adopt only a principle that you can will to be univ a universal rule consistently. I think a lot of what I'm worried about in this book has to do with collective action that I want to ground on considerations of duty. And if I don't want to be, which I don't, a sort of full-throated, full-time consequentialist, I think that's a real challenge to do. Those issues come up in Stephen's past where we're thinking about what do we owe other living beings? Well, Stephen's past, which is in the state of Washington, in the middle of the state of Washington, just before you get into the Northern Cascade Mountains, is another example of a shock of the Pacific Crest Trail of far from being wild and untouched by human beings in that you, you actually walk through a ski resort. And one of the most disconcerting things is the path takes you underneath the pylons of the cable car. And you look out and you see how all of this marvelous land has been clear cut to make, make space for the ski runs and the parking lots and the, and the cable cars. And you know the indigenous animals that live there have in a sense been removed if only because their environment has been changed. And that starts me thinking about animal rights. I'm a very hard nosed old school kind of guy in that I think that awareness is a condition for having moral standing. You can't, have moral standing unless there is something like it is to be you and it matters to you, not in the biological sense that it matters to an insect to reproduce or a virus to reproduce, but in the sense that if you are mistreated as it were, it matters to you. So in this chapter, I, I, I spend quite a lot of time discussing the notion of awareness and self-awareness and whether or not it's plausible to think that most animals have the capacity for awareness. I think about it primarily on the grounds of our best theory of the, the kind of hardware we need upstairs in order to be, have the capacity for awareness. Of course, it's very popular to say today that things like octopuses are so different in their structure and behave in such complicated way that maybe they're aware. 
the position I want to take is this, I, and I feel very strongly about this. I don't think that moral theories or ethical theories lend themselves to two levels of theory. You either have moral standing or you don't have moral standing. And if you have moral standing, then the whole point of ethics is to say, you deserve equal standing to everyone else. It doesn't work to say, well, you know, we'll give cows moral standing, but they're sort of second class moral standing. That's like saying, you know, oh, slaves, yes, well, they're human beings, they have some rights, but they don't have all of the rights of the real full-fledged moral beings. It's a prescription for disaster in terms of how we organize society. And so when people talk about animal rights, I want them to think really strongly about the implications. I think if you're going to give animal rights, then they have to have the same rights as you and me. And I don't think most people will end up doing that. And that leads me to the thought that, you know, maybe moral theory is a purely anthropomorphic, anthropocentric enterprise that we construct to try and regulate treatment between ourselves as a species, but it's not nearly as easy as people think to extend to other species. I mean, unless they come and talk to you and you suddenly realize, you know, they're like us, they just look very different. You know, so we're talking about considerations of animal welfare, what we owe other living beings. And you raise a similar set of questions when you're in the meadows, um, which is south of Stevens Pass. And you ask, is it permissible to privilege certain species over other species, for example, native species over species that have been introduced into the landscape? If we're going to pose it as a question of permissibility, I think that in a sense, we're going to be ascribing some moral standing to these species. At least for the purpose of argument in this chapter, I say, let's assume that, let's assume that's the case, even though later I give up that assumption, but I'm a philosopher, so I get to do whatever I want in that regard. I'm unconstrained by facts. But, and, and what I'm intrigued about in this chapter is the way in which we do privilege certain species over others. We delude ourselves into thinking that this is governed by a certain kind of high-mindedness. But in fact, I think it's actually an expression of an anthropocentric view of nature. So, you know, we love mammals and hate cockroaches. But another thing we do is we sentimentalize somehow the, the idea of original or native species over invasive species. And I really go sort of full-throated here in questioning these very categories. Think of the Hawaiian islands. They come from volcanoes underground that spew lava and, and build the island. And there's nothing native there. Everything is an invasive species because it all arrived by wind or by bird droppings or by, by sea long before humans came there. So I'm struck by the distinctions that people make in this regard. But I'm also struck, more importantly, from the point of view of our relationship to nature with the idea that we are driven by the idea of trying to freeze nature in time, which of course goes against what to me is the central feature of nature, which is um, natural selection. And natural selection dooms whatever exists to change over time. And yet the Pacific Crest Trail and Yosemite and all of the places you go are in a sense, um, the conceit behind them is the idea that we can preserve nature as it is and 
it's a very unrealistic notion whether or not we are causing change of nature through climate change or just natural processes are doing it. Yosemite is built by John Muir with the idea that we can represent nature as pure and without man and unaffected, frozen in time. But Yosemite has a long history from the Ice Age. And even today, the people who work at Yosemite are saying because of climate change, there's no way we can preserve it the way it is. As I write at different sections of the book, this idea of freezing nature comes out of a, a binary opposition between human beings and nature that arises in the face of the Industrial Revolution. It's the idea that nature is pure and benevolent and beautiful and man, human beings are the source of everything evil with regard to nature. I'm struck by the fact that, as I said at the very end of the book, that John Muir expresses this by evicting the native people from Yosemite because he doesn't want people to come and see Yosemite and see you know, human beings messing it up. It's to be frozen as free of man, not with man in it. You said that you didn't hike the whole Pacific Crest Trail, but no even problem. hiking... <laughs> Even hiking parts of it are, of course, physically demanding and challenging. But I wanted to know, what were some of the most demanding questions that this project brought up for you? I didn't even hike. I strolled. I, I walked. And in fact, I have some rather mean things to say about people who take on this project because I think it's a sort of self-centered project. I think the most demanding for me is what I take up in the, in the ninth chapter of the book which is struggling with the notion of whether we have a duty to nature. And this, is a, this has preoccupied me for a number of years. I don't, want to, I don't want to romanticize nature and say that nature is a person or nature has moral standing, but I want to come up with an argument that we have a duty to nature, a positive duty to nature, not a, just a, a duty to do no harm. So I'm walking in the Northern Cascades, which is amazing. I mean, it's the most, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in the world. And I'm actually um, moved to tears when I'm there. I don't cry that easily. I'm just overwhelmed by the beauty of it. And then I, I come home and start writing and I'm plowing through this really turgid philosophical argument by um, uh, Rolston on duties to nature, which doesn't make any sense and I'm trying to get pull out an argument about it and, and, I, and, I, and I suddenly have this epiphany I say to myself why are you doing this why you, you want a moral theory of duty to generate a way in which we should relate to nature respectfully but when you underwent this emotional epiphany there you naturally had that feeling of of humility and respect to nature Give up the thinking and embrace the emotion, which is a you know an expensive demand on a philosopher. We don't normally embrace emotional argument; we embrace logical argument. For me, that was a, a really creative point because I started thinking about how being in nature does evoke humility, and how evoking humility can evoke a kind of set of constraints on action that I think are important. I think Peter Railton, the philosopher, wrote about it the first time I saw it, which is talking about, as it were, thinking less and trying to evoke in people a state of mind that will get them, which will produce behaviors that we think are important. 
And that taps into a, an even more interesting literature that John Haidt has promoted, in which he argues that a lot of our thinking in, in the moral domain is in fact an ex post facto rationalization for something we've arrived at through non-cognitive processes that operate more quickly in the brain. You meet someone and you come to a judgment, I don't think this person is trustworthy or I think that person is trustworthy. He, he thinks and has evidence, he thinks supports it, that you've already arrived at that conclusion before you think it. You've arrived at it through an emotional response to the person, which of course is very bad interracially because you're more inclined to have an emotional response of the right kind to people who quote like you. This is quote people different from you. And this has to do with, as it were, fast and, fast and slow circuits in the brain. When perception goes to emotional centers more quickly than it goes to higher cognitive centers. I think this is true about ethical thinking as well. And that's what I learned from this, that maybe in thinking about relationship to nature, it's less about thinking and more about acting. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Christian Weishart wrote and produced the show. Our logo is created by Evie Brogius. Production assistance from Brian Price. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at sessions.blue. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.